Story one of Scientists Do Science in Space. Edward Short Sci-Fi, Volume Seven. The Cybery by Rod Phillips, Part Two. The next instant, it seemed he awakened. All the horror fresh in his mind, the stinging sensation at the nape of his neck changed to a dull, throbbing pain. Nadine had led him into this, but she was like the rest. A zombie unable to think for herself. He shook his head slowly in pained bewilderment. She hadn't been that way the first time he met her. She had been... herself. What could have created this nightmare? A voice somewhere sounded in deep, resonant tones. So you're awake, it said. Earl rolled onto his side and searched for the source of the voice. There was no one in view. He was in a room whose walls and ceiling were heavy glass. He looked through the ceiling and saw the familiar maze of steel catwalks inside the dome. Outside his glass prison, a pair of video cameras were trained on him. Their lenses seemed somehow sentient, so that their motionlessness partook of the quality of a fixed stare. I have always wanted to meet you, the voice said, and it seemed to come from a small case atop the camera frames. It was a dream, Earl decided. He had been hit on the head. In his delirium he had conjured up the brain, activated and intelligent as it was designed to be in theory possessed of a mind of its own. Of course, the voice went on, I've seen film shots of you. You were the discoverer of the nerve fluid that made me possible. Earl sat up abruptly. Who are you, and where? I am the Cyberine. This is the year 3042 AD, in the old calendar. I had you brought here through what might be called a time tube from your own period. Shortly you will return to that tube to your own time, as many hours ahead from the time you left as you spend here before you go back. Earl got to his feet slowly, watching the glistening lenses. Now it begins to fit together, he said. You're behind Nadine and Lad. You say I am the discoverer of the nerve fluid. You're mistaken. It hasn't been found yet, and there are ten of us looking for it. One of the others may be the one to find it. History says you found it. And you just wanted to see me because of that? Earl asked. Watch, the voice said. The plate glass wall in front of Earl changed suddenly to become apparently a giant window overlooking a huge, sprawling city. There were buildings that reached thousands of feet into the sky, with fragile-looking networks of bridges spanning the spaces among them. There were giant aircraft in the sky, in the distance was a trail of fire that might be from an interplanetary rocket ship departing spaceward. And abruptly, the elfin city was blotted out by a blinding sun. Seconds later, the blinding sun was gone, and Earl could see the city again. But now it was only the skeleton of what it had been. Its spiderweb design of bridges was torn and twisted. Many of its tall buildings were even now toppling toward the ground. Fire shot skyward in a pyrotechnic display of havoc. A giant airplane appeared, heading straight toward the window through which Earl watched. It grew larger. For a brief second he looked into its control cabin and saw its pilot and co-pilot. They were human, but their faces were harsh and cruel, their eyes cold and inhuman. In the next instant they were gone. That is a typical scene on the other Earth, the voice of the Cyberine explained. The scene of the desolate city vanished. In its place appeared another scene, a city under construction, 
giant building machines were placing it together, and the parts that were completed were even more beautiful than had been that other city. Earl, from his vantage point, seemed to drop closer and drift over the scene of construction to a part that was inhabited. He saw the people below. They wore no clothes and didn't seem to mind. Each appeared to be intent on going somewhere. None of them were talking or paying any attention to one another. Their expressions were blank, their eyes vacant. The vantage point followed one of them. Shortly, the man being followed turned into an archway, up an incline, and into a large hall. We went through a door into the room filled with cell-like vats. In each transparent vat, Earl saw a human embryo, alive and growing. He followed the man through this place to another, where children were playing with psychological toys, designed to increase mechanical and scientific aptitudes. This, too, is a typical scene on this earth, the Siberian said. The scene vanished. Once again, Earl looked into the video eyes of the brain. They are both Earth in the year 3042, the Cyberine said, but not the same Earth. In 1980, there was a split. Earth followed two independent futures, the first filled with wars and eternal carnage, ever more perfect weapons of destruction developed from one decision you made. The second, my world, filled with perpetual peace and happiness, developed from the alternative decision. You created these two futures. I, Earl said, you must be crazy. How? In the first, you discovered the vital nerve fluid that makes me possible. You thought you were God. You thought you could see a future in which I would work the human race harm. You suppressed your discovery by the simple process of giving a negative lab report on the substance. In the second world, you did as you were supposed to do. You announced your discovery. I came into being. You mean to say my actions caused the whole planet to split into two identical worlds? In effect, yes. I'll try to explain. Matter and motion are not real in the basic sense. They are properties of your mind. They are what your finite mind sees. But reality is the space-time continuity of which one instant is a cross-section. In effect, consciousness flows along the time dimension which I term the fourth dimension. But in addition, there is a fifth dimension so that these two Earths have the same space-time coordinates in four dimensions, and two different ones in the fifth. In Euclidean concepts, that other Earth is eighty-seven millionths of an inch from this, in the fifth dimension. In that Earth I did not develop. The dome is still there, but the brain, if it still exists, was never activated. As a result, humanity continued its violent progress through time, engaging in war after war. When I discovered time travel and saw all this, I decided to go back and contact you before your instant of decision and get you to release the identity of the nerve fluid when you discover it. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, Earl said. In your time. I see, Earl said. Tomorrow I make the discovery. In one time stream I tell Glassman, in the other I decide not to. What made me decide not to? You thought the brain would be bad for humanity. You were, of course, wrong. Was I? Earl said. In that other world, wars are the normal state of things. They stem from problems that don't exist in my world, overpopulation, competition in trade, in things that aren't necessary to human economy, opposed political systems, all the foibles and inconsistencies of untrained and unorganized populations. I understand that, Earl said. 
Why don't your people wear clothes? Clothes are unnecessary. One of the things I eliminated in reducing the industrial economy to a minimum. Overpopulation? There is none. People are made in the laboratory as they are needed. Their lives are uncomplicated by animal problems such as reproduction and artificial customs such as modesty. Their education is simplified and factual. Their lives functional. And I made that decision all by myself? Yes, that's why I have brought you here, to get you to change that decision. You see, I must change the past. I must do that in order to correct the future, make the other earth a sane place, dominated by a second Cyberine, which is a counterpart of me. That's what I thought, Earl said with reckless boldness. I'm beginning to understand why I made my decision to suppress the identity of the nerve substance. You did that. The things I've seen. You're just like dictators of our time. You think you're so right that everyone will naturally agree with you. I don't. I think it's more humane to let people come into the world as they will, and have wars that destroy them, than to decide just how many are to be born. You need a new man in the garbage disposal plant in twenty years, press a button and he'll be born in a few months. Going to have less to do in some factory in twenty years, keep the zombies from being born. Less trouble than killing them off later to save on the food bill. I was afraid you might feel that way, the Cyberine said. I have the answer to it. Nadine Holmes. Make an accurate report tomorrow on the tests. In return, I will leave her in your time. Even plant directives, so that she will always be a loving and devoted wife to you. I would prefer her as she is, naturally. Today, her every outward manifestation was under my direct mental control. Don't you see, Earl Fry? Just before you followed her into my neatly laid trap to get you here, you watched her come up the hill and adored every line of her, every mannerism, every play of expression. With one small corner of my mind, I can anticipate your wishes and fulfill them in her. It wouldn't be her, Earl said, shaking his head. And even if it were at a cost of billions of unborn generations, no. But you will do as I wish, whether you wish to or not. Why not obey me freely and get this reward, rather than nothing? I can control you, the voice ended triumphantly. Now! It was a shuddering protest from Earl's lips, forcing itself out against his wishes. The throbbing ache at the base of his brain increased abruptly, slowly, to measurable beats. I can control your body, your conscious mind, shoving you into the back recesses of thought, and when you try to come out, I can punish you like I'm doing now. No! Earl screamed, his reserve breaking down completely. Suddenly into his cosmos of unbearable suffering and horror filtered a thought that created hope. Nadine had been free during those first hours he had met her. She had defied George Ladd, unsuccessfully, but she had defied him. And when they had sprawled through that doorway to the future, for a moment he had seen that same free Nadine in her eyes, her expression, or had she ever been free? The terrible throbbing pain blurred his thinking. Had she been free in the smelter where she attracted his attention while the others surrounded him? If he had run directly to her, he would have escaped being surrounded, but... Anger entered his mind like a little finger of thought. Anger at Nadine, he was surprised, confused. Then it came to him that it was not his anger. It came from outside. Alien. From the depths of his own instincts, fear welled up and became blind panic. 
fighting against the something that was growing stronger, crowding around his soul, forcing it to retreat within itself until Earl Fry, his awareness of being Earl Fry, of being himself, was all that remained, helpless to control or even to feel. Through a mental fog he was aware that he had stood up, the glass cage had lifted, and he was free to go, but not he. His body was controlled by the cyberine. He was aware that he had left the dome to walk through a beautifully landscaped garden to a building he had not seen before, but which he knew to be the 3042 end of the time tube. He was aware of pausing and looking back at the dome, now a thing of incredible beauty to him, the repository of his physical vehicle, the brain, but not his, the Siberines. He entered the time tube. He stepped from it onto grassy ground. He went through the trees to the sidewalk. He returned to the lab building, to his lab, to his living quarters. He encountered Basil. He listened to himself talk in casual tones, normal tones. He was unable to control even his conscious thoughts, but his consciousness was a thing apart from him. He fought the domination of the Cyberine with arms that would not move, with a tongue that would not utter his words, with a rage that would not alter his calm and pleasant expression. He fought the pain that throbbed within him. He fought to stay sane. Slowly he began to adjust to his position. He no longer fought. He was like a passenger on a plane who watches it take off, fly great distances and land, with no concern about the details. Having no control whatever over his body, he was free of responsibility toward its routine behavior. He became aware that pain had departed. The very thing he had fought began to interest him. There must be some definite mechanism, property of the mind, that made telepathic enslavement possible in this way. Undoubtedly, Nadine was also a free focus of thought behind her enslaved service. She came into the lab at ten o'clock, cheerful but impersonal. He heard himself talking to her in the same way. He could see her, listen to her. Therefore, behind her impersonal eyes was the Nadine he had first met, watching him, knowing what had happened. It gave him comfort to know that. He had not lost her. She was there. Knowing that, and knowing there was no way to communicate with her at present, he turned his attention to what her body and his were doing. The silicons haven't been explored too thoroughly yet, she was saying. They have some disadvantages, but those can be eliminated by additions to the iron rings to serve as protective buffers. I have several of them in this tray I brought in. I'd like you to run them through the tests. Earl's eyes focused on the tray. They paused briefly on the formula of the third one from the nearest end. Earl sensed that this was the long-sought-for substance. He built up its theoretical structure. He saw at once how it achieved its properties. I'll be back this afternoon, Nadine said. By then you should have your lab reports ready. Then she was gone. Earl's hands went through the motions of pouring each vial into a pump. He turned his attention away from the routine, as a traveller in a passenger plane might turn away from the window to something else. A feeling of hopelessness grew within him. How could he stop things or interfere with them when he couldn't affect a muscle? The Cybrine had been playing with him when it tried to get him to do its bidding of his own free will. He realized that now. It would have pleased its vanity if he had. But this was too important for it to trust anything other than itself. When it was done, when the fluid was forced into the hundreds of thousands of miles of hair-like glass tubing, the billions of fine glass cells, it would never give him his freedom. It would be afraid of what he might be able to do, so it would kill him. Unless he could prevent the brain from being activated, and unless he were free to command his body, 
He could never do that. What had the Cyberine said to him about time travel and alternate time streams? The theories weren't exactly new. They had been explored in imaginative fiction for over fifty years. No one had really thought there might be some basis in fact for the theories. What had caused the split which had produced two Earths in separate time streams? The Cyberine hadn't seemed to know that detail, or if it had, it had brushed over it casually, so as not to make him curious about it. Was it events? Or was it something in the basic substratum of matter, and the events were the result? That might be an important distinction. If it were events, then bringing the brain to life in this time stream might eliminate the divergent streams, bringing them together as one. That, in effect, might destroy the other world of 3042 AD. Maybe that was what the Cyberine intended. But suppose he were able even yet to defeat the Cyberine scheme. Then the two time streams would remain unchanged. The free world of the future would remain free. But that was not enough. He wanted to destroy both brains. How could he accomplish that, assuming he were able to accomplish anything? The logical time to do it would be in 1980, now, before the Cyberine gained control of the world, and made itself impregnable. But how? And, if he could figure that out, could he act if an opportunity arose? Irene and Connor came in at lunchtime. I had a wonderful time with Basil last night, she said. I'm glad you did, Earl heard his voice say. Hope leaped with him. Maybe the Cyberine would make some mistake that would arouse suspicions in her. The hope died as the door to the hall opened again, and Nadine came in. You promised to take me to lunch, Earl, she said. Ready, Earl heard himself say. It was evident that the Cyberine didn't intend him to be alone with any of the others long enough for the possibility of something suspicious to arise. They went to a small cafe several blocks from the lab building. For the benefit of anyone happening to be looking at them, they carried on small talk while they ate. Earl found himself hanging onto every word Nadine uttered, watching her every expression. He was so close to her, yet so far away. It was like standing outside a window and watching her, while she seemed unaware of him. He kept watching for the faintest flicker of expression that would show the real Nadine. Slowly, without quite realizing it, he began to pretend it was Nadine. He listened to her small talk. He listened to his, and at times forgot it wasn't actually his, and that he couldn't control one word of what he said. He became happy. He let himself be aware of the flavor of the food. He laughed within himself when his vocal cords laughed. He reached out and touched Nadine's hand, thrilling to the feel of her soft skin. She drew her hand back, a startled light in her eyes. It was gone the next instant. Once more she was impersonal, controlled. The dull, throbbing pain flared to torturing intensity within him, blurring thought, punishing him, forcing him behind his prison walls of grey mental fog. But through the pain, apart from it, he experienced a surge of hope. It had been he who had reached out to Nadine, not the Cyberine controlling him. Was there still hope? At two o'clock, Nadine would pick up his lab report sheets and turn them over to Glassman. Then the identity of the ideal nerve fluid would be known. It would be out of his hands, even if he were in full control of his faculties. He and Nadine rose. They were going back to the lab building. He raged against the hidden mental barriers that contained him. He fought frenziedly to influence some slight movement of his body. He might as well have been a passenger on an ocean liner trying to change the course of the thousands of tons of steel by thought alone while standing at the rail. His sphere of awareness grew clouded. He was raging against a mental wall that became almost tangible. 
he stopped fighting from sheer impotence, and the barrier retreated. The more I fight, the more helpless I am. That thought at once created its corollary. The less I struggle, the closer I am to control. That was it. He had so identified his desires with the actions of his body that for one instant he meshed with it. That, then, was the secret, the principle. But it contained within itself its own difficulty. By wanting to activate the brain, he could perhaps actually control some of his actions. But the instant he did something counter to the Cyberine, that control would be taken away from him and replaced by throbbing pain. He had touched Nadine's hand, though. It had been a gesture so unconscious that the Cyberine had been unaware of it until it happened. It was the right direction. The possibility of what he wanted to do filled him with a sense of defeat. It would be impossible to falsify the lab report on the nerve fluid. One false word on the card and the Cyberine would erase it and fill the card out correctly. He fought back the feeling of futility. He reached out, identifying himself with every sensation from his body. He was walking. He wanted to walk. He was talking. He wanted to say what he heard himself say. It would go along well, and then his body would do something he didn't expect, and he would be filled with the realization that he had no control. It would be a mental stumble while his body didn't falter. During each brief period of identifying his desires with his actions, he found his awareness of sensations expand, until it was almost complete identification, complete meshing. Meshing until the gears were almost strong enough to grip for a brief second. Perhaps in time they would grip for more than a second before alarm bells rang for the Cyberine. He was alone in his lab. He was placing the fine tubes of test substances in their respective instrument cabinets. Ordinarily he did this almost automatically. Now he watched his every move, building up interest in it, desiring to do everything he did, anticipating what he would do next and wanting to do it, pretending it was he who issued the commands to his muscles. The crucial moment was just ahead. He had stepped to the instrument case that held the key fluid. He started to write down the readings from the instruments. His fingers shook, and it was his nervousness that shook them. A mistake in the readings here and there would do it. Speed of iron travel. The meter said 2,000 plus feet per second. His fingers wrote the two and a zero. Before he could write the second zero, he tried to write the plus sign. Triumphantly, he saw his fingers obey his will. Abruptly, they paused and he was aware that a power outside his world had made them pause. Throbbing pain surged up to full intensity, enveloping him, sickening him so that his soul was a writhing thing, unable to think or feel anything other than pain. Slowly it lessened, or was he growing better able to suffer it? Thoughts filtered into him through grey mists clouding his mind. He saw his hands fill out the rest of the card correctly. He was dimly aware of rushing excitedly from the lab down the hall, shouting that he had found it. Others were joining him as he hurried to Glassman's office and burst in, waving the card. Glassman seized it, his eyes afire with the fulfilment of his dream. And it was too late. Too late now to erase the knowledge of the identity of that fluid from Glassman's mind. From the minds of the other nine scientists crowding around him, congratulating him. It was too late. That realization crowded out everything else. The Cyberine had won. We want to put it through every test conceivable, Glassman said. All ten of you drop everything else and work on it. Get the speed of impulse down to the last fraction of an inch per second. Get behavior in different sized tubes. Find the least diameter of the fluid column for non-function. Everything. We want to be sure before we start pumping 250,000 gallons of the stuff into the brain. Dr. Glassman's eyes were afire with the triumph of success. 
Dream my life has come true, he said. The brain will live. It will live forever, growing wiser than any man or any group of men. It will remake the world, civilization. It will end wars. It will guide mankind into a Garden of Eden, utopia. It was my dream for mankind. He became aware of those watching him. The fire of fanaticism left his eyes. He relaxed and laughed embarrassedly. But right now, congratulations are in order for Dr. Fry. He's the one who has found a substance that makes it possible. Nadine had been standing quietly on the sidelines, almost forgotten in this moment. She came forward now and extended her hand. Congratulations, Dr. Fry, she said. It was for effect. Earl heard himself say, Maybe you are the one who should get the credit. He paid little attention. It was a show, an opera, and his body and hers were players reciting lines from a script. But a hand in his was warm. He clung to the feel of it, thinking bitterly that now there was nothing else. What would become of him? He didn't care. He sunk into a mood of utter defeat. It was all the worse, he realized, because right now, if the Cybrine had not come into the picture, if he had been left to himself, he would be deliriously happy, just as his own exterior self was seeming to be. After a while, he was back in the lab. His body was working on more elaborate experiments with the fluid. His vocal cords were humming a tune in a tone of absent-minded happiness. He wished fervently that there were some way he could be wiped out completely. Grey walls around his awareness were not enough, not with the unbearable suffering. The hours passed slowly for him. He tried not to think, to remain passive. It was no use. His bitterness was too strong. His sense of defeat was too overpowering. His eyes glanced up at the door as it opened, then down at his wristwatch. It was three minutes after five. Nadine was in the doorway. It's time to go, Earl, she said. Go where? But his body hastily, putting things in order, as though it knew. They left the building together, walked along the sidewalk as though they might be headed towards some dinner rendezvous. They left the sidewalk, and then Earl knew. They were going to the entrance to the time tube. They were going back to the year 3042. Why? He should have remained. Maybe this would create suspicion. But even as he thought that, he knew it wouldn't. Everyone would think that he and Nadine were at some restaurant, perhaps later at some night spot. No one would bother to check and see if he came back to his rooms. Ahead was the clear spot with its smooth, convex depression, and the shimmering refraction in the air. Side by side, he and Nadine walked toward it, and were in a corridor, the woodland scene wiped out. No unusual sensation of any kind. Stepping across a thousand years was no different than crossing the threshold of a doorway. George Ladd was there waiting for them. The Cybrine wants to see both of you, he said. Nothing more. No paralysis gun, no guards to keep Earl from escaping. But he couldn't escape, and stood on it. Out of the corner of his eye he saw Nadine do the same. From above, the glass boxes were lowered over them. Something left him. Without having tested the feeling, he knew that he was in full possession of himself. He could command, and his body, his voice, would obey. He turned toward the glass wall facing Nadine. He pressed against it. She was doing the same. Nadine, he said. And it was a greeting, a caress. Oh! And they were drinking in one another with their eyes. Very touching. One would think you are in love with her, Earl Fry. Oh, no, I, that is... Earl stopped in amazement of the self-revelation. Look at her, the Cybrine's voice said. 
In spite of most careful conditioning starting in the lab tank in her pre-breathing stage, she feels the same way about you. Nadine's lips were trembling with a smile. She was nodding. Earl was irritated. Did you bring me here just to tell me that? he asked. Or to torture me further? he added bitterly. No, I brought you here to show you that I'm grateful. You did what I wanted done. The fact that it was done in spite of you makes no difference. It's done and can be undone by you. You realize that? To gloat. I might have known, Earl said contemptuously. Not that either. I want to reward you. I've thoroughly explored your mind. I know that if you give your word, you will keep it. I understand a little about your feeling on personal freedom. Now that the vital fluid is known to enough people so that nothing you can do would undo that, I'm willing to let you have Nadine. The real Nadine. Yes, Earl said warily. Yes. All I ask in return is your promise not to try to undo anything and to go ahead with your work without ever mentioning what has happened. Once you give your promise, I will let you and Nadine go to your time and stay there. Free agents. Earl frowned. I don't get it, he said. I didn't expect anything like this from you. You thought that after I had bypassed you and accomplished my purpose, I would eliminate you. The Siberian laughed. You will find that I am a very benevolent master. The video eyes seemed to glisten with joviality. I still don't get it, Earl said, puzzled. You want my word that I won't interfere with anything you do from here on in? Yes. After all, there is a lot to do yet before the brain in your time stream is activated. I must— So, Earl interrupted, according to your theory of time that you so carefully explained to me, the discovery of the vital nerve substance should have fixed up everything. It didn't. The brain hasn't been activated yet in your time stream. When it has, then the future will reshape itself. I want to understand, Earl said. As I understand it, some act, some crucial act, must be changed from the way it happened in the past, in my future, in that past. Until that crucial moment is changed from the way it happened, all the future stemming from it remains unaltered. The instant that crucial moment is changed, presto, the whole future from 1980 right down to 3042 does a mighty flip-flop, and right here and now, in that other earth so close to this one, things will change as abruptly as the change of scene on a screen. That's correct. And getting my lab reports correct wasn't the thing. There is still something to come back there that must be changed. In spite of everything up to now, you are still facing defeat. That's why you are willing to offer me so much. You misunderstand my motives, the Siberian said. I don't think so. You aren't dealing with a mind-slave now. You may be non-human, but you are thinking mind. You have desires, motives for doing things, ways of doing them. In other words, you're a type. In offering me everything I want, you're out of your type. Unless there's something you want that you can't get any other way. When I came in here, I was licked. All I wanted was to die. Now I'm not so sure. I'm not even sure you know what you're doing. I have hope. Do you understand that? Earl was trembling violently, a mixture of emotions coursing through him. I'm going to destroy you before I'm done. You're going to take control of me again and try to prevent that. You don't know whether you can or not, because you can't go into your future. You can't even go into the past in any detail. You can't even go into the past in any detail. How do I know that? I'm a scientist. I'm trying to put two and two together and get four. If you could go anywhere in the past, you could have explored every detail of my future and know now what happened. Perhaps I do know the Siberian said. You forget I'm attempting to change what happened. I have changed what happened. In the time stream, the way it was originally, we discovered the right nerve fluid and suppressed it. 
You faked a negative report on it. I've changed that much of the past already. Have you? Earl said dully, as emotion spent. All right, then. Don't mind me. You're not going to get any promise from me, no matter how much you torture me. His voice changed to cold bitterness. I'm going to fight you to the end and win. I don't know how, but the very fact that you haven't changed the present of that other earth proves you haven't succeeded yet. And won't. I'll win. Then I'll destroy you, and Adina and I can be free. But somewhere along the line, the Cyberine had taken control again. Earl wasn't quite sure when his vocal cords stopped obeying his mental commands. His body was standing quietly. He could not affect it. The grey walls were closing in around him, the pain growing. He didn't fight it. He welcomed the grey walls that clouded the channels to his conscious mind. He sensed dimly that he and Nadine were going back the way they had come, back to the time tube, back to 1980, to what might be the final battle. He was alone in his living quarters. He was aware of sleeping. Then it was morning, and he crept cautiously into his conscious mind, a hurt and wounded soul, and his conscious mind was serene and happy, unaware of his suffering as it began its day's work.